Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. For most of us, flies can be some of the most annoying creatures on Earth, and our natural response is to swat them. But to ethologist Jonathan Balcom, they're essential members of the natural world with complex relationships to our ecosystems. In his new book, Superfly, The Unexpected Lives of the World's Most Successful Insects, he explains why we might want to think twice before breaking out that fly swatter. It's published by Penguin, and I'm very pleased to welcome Jonathan Balcom to our show now. Hello. Hi, Leonard. You're an expert uh, in animal behavior. Out of all the animal life on Earth, why did you choose flies as the subject for a book? Well, I tend to gravitate towards unpopular animals uh, and, un and misunderstood animals, and certainly flies fit the bill. There's a lot of fascinating research on them. They're an incredibly diverse group of animals, incredibly present. Everybody has experience with experiences with flies, a lot of them negative, granted. But I thought it would be a really fun subject to explore and to, to share some of the remarkable aspects of these diverse creatures' lives with the, the public who mostly doesn't get access to this information. And you say you consider them the world's most successful insects. The most successful insects? In what way? Well, first of all, insects themselves are far and away the most successful group of animals on the planet. 80% of all animal species on the planet today are insects, and flies make up a very big chunk of them. There's a, there's a whole lot of groups of insects, orders of insects within the insects, and the leaders are beetles and flies and probably hymenoptera, the ants and wasps, in terms of sheer numbers and influence on the planet. Uh, but a very good case can be made that flies are the most diverse. Currently, there's, there's about 160 60,000 described species. And if scientists go into the tropics and set up these traps to catch insects, and then they look at what's in there, most of the flies in there will be undescribed to science. And it's estimated there may be about five times as many species of flies as have currently been described. And that would rank them higher than the beetles, uh, which are currently ranked number one in the world. And there is something like 17 quadrillion flies in the world that's 17 followed by 15 zeros <laughs> wow you know, we can't, it's really hard to count isn't it so i've heard estimates perhaps into the quintillions which is another three mm -hmm. zeros on what you mentioned um there's also a couple other numbers worth mentioning an estimated one about one and a half billion insects for every human and about 20 million flies for every human and they're and also how do they the compared only... to bacteria yeah are they, I mean, are, you get to are the there micro, more flies the than bacteria should be? Well, the, you know, you get to the microorganisms and of course the numbers just become complete, celestially astronomical. I mean, I don't know really how many zeros you'd be adding, but of, of creatures who we can actually see and interact with, uh, the insects are by far and away the most abundant and diverse. Are they able to live in every climate, uh, it, even in the Arctic, for example? They are the only group of insects, as far as I know, that are found on all seven continents. They're also the only one to, to, to have representatives living in the ocean. No other insect seems to have, have mastered that skill. There's even a, a petroleum fly who, whose larvae yeah. lives in, in crude oil. Uh, so that speaks to their entrepreneurship, their, their ability to exploit habitats that are pretty uninhabitable to everybody else. Well, how do you define a fly? How do they, uh, if I find some small winged insect, 
how would I know that it's a fly and not a wasp or uh, some version of the moths or, well, I'm, I'm sure I would know it wasn't a bee. The short answer is two wings, which is the basis for the Greek name for flies, diptera. And diptera is diptera, two wing. And sometime in the evolutionary past of flies, they lost the, well, they didn't quite lose the second, the rear pair of wings. Those wings instead got modified into what looks like a baton, baton twirler's baton. It's a stick with a knob on the end and it's in motion when flies are flying, but it, uh, it, it, it flaps in counter phase to the wings and it appears to be, it's thought to be beneficial for stability of flight and perhaps some other functions. But that's sort of the defining characteristic of a fly. That said, Leonard, there's, there are many fly species that have no wings. They've lost their wings because they don't need them. They're, for instance, bat flies, obscure little flies that scurry around on the under the fur of bats. Well, the bats do all the flying for them, so they don't need to have their mm-hmm. wings, and so they've lost them through evolutionary time. When we think of the insect world, most of us see bees, butterflies, and ants as useful, sometimes even noble, but flies are either innocuous or a nuisance. So it's a common expression is a fly in the ointment. Yeah, it's a fair question. But actually, flies are superb pollinators. They rank second only to bees as pollinators of plants. Whoa. And uh, pollination is extremely important. I mean, uh, most of the foods we eat, the plant-based foods we eat, are pollinated by insects. Uh, but a couple of other important functions worth mentioning is, is waste disposal, which is kind of a, a negative association we have with flies. You know, their attraction to poop and, and dead bodies. But the fact that they, they are attracted means that they greatly speed up and streamline the cleaning up of those messes. And it's safe to say the world would be a stinkier and more pestilential <laughs> place without flies. And the other thing worth mentioning here in this context is f- food chains or food webs. Flies are vital components of those, both, both as predators and consumers, uh, but also as sources of food for other animals higher up the food chain. You think of how many fishes eat insects and how many mammals and birds, and birds especially, eat insects. They also form a critical ecological bridge between those microorganisms we just mentioned, the bacteria and the other tiny tinies, which we don't eat directly. But insects, by consuming a lot of that, makes that bioavailable to other organisms higher up in the food web. Most of us are familiar with house flies, black flies, fruit flies, but there, you say there are so many different kinds. There are also sand flies. I've seen horse flies, of course, deer flies. Do each of them exist only in particular geographical areas or uh, prey on particular species? Yes, uh, the, the, the blood-sucking flies, the, the ones that go after blood. There's, there's only so many who, who go after our blood. Uh, um, most mosquitoes don't, don't take any interest in humans, for instance, and mosquitoes are true flies. Um, you know, the, mosquitoes are flies? Flies. Yes, mosquitoes are part of the diptera. They have to so, be the most hated of all insects. I think it's a fair, a fair description and a, and a fair charge. Um, and that annoying whine, it's not enough that they bite us. They can really ruin a night's, a night's sleep. Nevertheless. Um, and give us a are, disease. Yes. And that's, that's really quite something. I mean, a book that came out last year called Mosquito, written by um, a, a historian, uh, outlines the incredible impact that mosquitoes have and continue to have on us through being vectors of, of virulent diseases, malaria and Zika and Leishmaniasis and encephalitis and dengue, et cetera. There's about 15 
mosquito-borne illnesses that afflict us. And there's a few others that come from those little sand flies or biting midges and the tsetse flies in Africa. So they're quite infamous in that regard. And, and Timothy Weingart, who wrote that book, Mosquito, estimates that of the 100, 112 billion or so humans who've ever walked the earth, almost half of them, I think the number was 52 billion, succumbed to insect-borne or mosquito, in fact, mosquito-borne illnesses. So that says something about their impact on us. Is it true that some people are more attractive to mosquitoes than others? There's not a lot of effort, ev studies on that, although you'd think there would be more than there is. But, but what evidence I discovered while I was researching my book suggests that males, male humans are slightly more attractive. Uh, there's something about drinking beer that is thought to be <laughs> make us more, more, more tempting to a mosquito. Uh, I think it's dark clothing, maybe not a good idea. And exercise. I think exercise kind of makes sense. It makes us, uh, we're breathing harder. There's more CO2. And, and that's one of the cues that mosquitoes use. It's not the only one. They use our warmth. They use our, they use our movement. Um, so they're very resourceful. But uh, there seems to be certain aspects of certain of us that are more attractive. I can also say, apparently, there's some evidence that the ve vehemence with which we swat and try to defend ourselves against mosquitoes can actually be beneficial. It can discourage them, whether it's actually a discouragement or something else that's going on. Uh, they're less likely to continue to pursue us. And another aspect that I, I was interested to, to learn is that later in the season, their bites tend to be less itchy and irritating. Apparently, this is a seasonal kind of mini uh, um, resistance that we've built up, an immunity to the effects of those bites. And it's the saliva in the bite that gives us the itch. Is it possible to fend off mosquitoes by using certain scents or by dietary choices rather than using chemical repellents? I don't know if anyone's tried that. Again, because of the, the importance of mosquitoes as biters of humans, uh, you'd think there'd be a lot of science on that. I, ha I have to admit, I'm not, I'm not an expert on that science. I'd, I don't recall uh, uncovering much of that. I know those, um, I forget what the, what the chemical is. It's a natural plant product, but uh, those coils that people burn. I mean, th some of those can be certainly effective. I believe the, uh, the light, what are they called? The blue traps, the blue light traps are, are not effective. For one thing, they're unselective. They kill all sorts of beneficial insects. And one can make the case that they're attracting just as many mosquitoes into your, into your space than they may be killing. But apparently people get this some satisfaction from hearing that zapping sound when, they, when some poor insect stumbles into that trap. Yeah, well, you write that mosquitoes are more responsible for human deaths than humans. So would we, when we look at the scheme of things, we see that as their main role in the world? Uh, certainly from our perspective, uh, it can be seen that. And it's certainly understandable that we defend ourselves. But um, experts are pretty much say that we, we can, we may, we, we, the best we can do is suppress and we're not likely to extinguish these populations. Because insects are so nimble evolutionarily, because they, their generation spans are short, they can adjust to the things that we throw at them, the curves that we throw at them. For instance, bed, bed nets are very effective and they, they're thought to have caused a 40% drop between 2000 and 2016. That's 663 million fewer cases of malaria in humans. But uh, some mosquitoes in those areas are now shifting their feeding schedules away from the nighttime to the daytime because that's, it's only at night that we're generally putting up bed nets. So that's just one illustration of the kind of 
nimbleness that insects show and how quickly they can respond to uh, our defenses? Well, what would you, what do you say to people who just would like to eliminate mosquitoes altogether, just spray the world with DDT, for example, uh, as a way to, to protect our health? Yeah, we've seen how that's not a good idea. For one thing, you know, these chemicals, as, as Rachel Carson taught us uh, half a century ago, they move up the food chain and, you know, uh, ospreys, for instance, fish hawks are much more common around here in Ontario now since we stopped using DDT. Uh, they were very rare in the late 60s when, when it was at its peak. And you just can't blast them away. Uh, for one thing, again, uh, pesticides tend to be non-selective. And insects, because they're so critical, as I mentioned earlier, as pollinators and food webs, we would do much worse without them than with them. In fact, while insects would continue to thrive if Homo sapiens disappeared from the world, the opposite is far from true. Uh, ecosystems would collapse without insects and we would go down with them. So we need to realize that we can't just um, run it the way we want. Uh, it's totally understandable that we may defend ourselves from mosquitoes, but uh, they are uh, critical parts of food chains and critical parts of a functioning planet. My guest is Jonathan Balcom, whose latest book is Superfly, The Unexpected Lives of the World's Most Successful Insects. It's published by Penguin, and this is WBAI New York. 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Uh, um, so you said there are many different kinds of flies uh, and petroleum flies, for example, only living in petroleum. Do, do sand flies only live in sand? <laughs> are, are deer actually... flies only found on deer? Horse flies only around horses? Well, that's that's those latter two are definitely not the case because uh, you know most many humans around here at least have had run-ins with horseflies and they're found yes. worldwide. Um, I actually allowed a horsefly to bite me as part of my research for this book, as I as I did a stable fly, two flies that I'd never let them bite me if I could help it, uh, and they're painful bites those two. Uh, but there's something a little underwhelming about them if you're stealing yourself and you're prepared for it. At least that was my experience. But uh, they're not all fussy. Uh, there are some flies that are extremely specific about their partners in nature or, or their, their hosts for parasites, uh, even more so with pollination systems between uh, uh, flies and, and flowers. And I hope we'll get into that. Um, of course, but 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 uh, they 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 vary. Some of them are, are more selective than others in terms of who they go after. There are many flies that are super specific, uh, that are parasitic or parasitoids on other on other insects. There's groups of flies like the tachinid flies that only target other insects for their prey, um, uh, and they go after them with a parasitic method where they the young develop inside and feed on the host in some cases. Well, you said the mosquitoes are a form of fly. What about midges and, and gnats and noceums? Are they yeah, a type all, of fly? All three of those. All three of those. Yeah. Phantom, there's phantom midges. There's other groups of midges. Uh, there are fungus gnats and various, various other kinds of gnats. Um, right here in southern Ontario, this time of year, I, I, I cycle a lot along the bay shore of Lake Ontario, and I often... I wear my sunglasses even if it's late evening and getting dim because those you go through a, a cloud of gnats and there's a lot of them. These are mating swarms of, of midges and gnats and you go through those and they get you in, in the eye and they, they, they get all over you. They, they don't really stay. They usually hop off because they don't want to stay on you. Um, but uh, they're, they're in huge numbers and I've seen swarms of swallows flying around feeding on them. 
uh, and some of them have curious uh, sex lives as well. So why are they all called flies? Just because because of the wings, or the, or in some cases because they used to have wings. I think it's partly. I, I again, I don't know because the they're so they seem so them. different. In you know, a, a, a horsefly feels very different than uh, well than a mosquito. Are you saying like to be bitten? You mean? No, I'm just saying if I look at them. They oh, look yeah. quite different. Is is there something in their uh, the basic makeup that uh, makes them all into flies? Uh, I, I can only I can only point you back to the two the fact that they have the two wings. Um, mm. But uh, certainly, I think they're deserving of the name fly because they're superb aerialists. You know, many of us have seen house flies crawling on ceilings and walls, and why we don't like to see them in our houses. I mean, the fact that they can land upside down. And crawl around. I think it's a pretty pretty cool skill. They don't look quite as impressive if they're bumping inanely against a, a window. But consider that they've not evolved to deal with windows. That's a kind of a new thing in their environment. But I think their capacity to fly with such skill. There's little flies that can hover in the space of, of the amount of space that a, a that a tea that a tea bag would provide. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen hoverflies hovering in one place, but it's a, it's quite an impressive skill, and they'll zip away when they see a prospective mate or perhaps prospective prey, uh, and then they'll zoom back to the same spot and just sit there motionless with their wings beating perhaps 400 times per second. Uh, you have to marvel at their flight abilities. Well, to be honest, I since I don't study flies, for me, uh, when flies are around, I'm just waving my hand to get them off or, um, or swatting at them. Uh, but uh, you, you, in your book, you do write about some very unusual kinds of flies. You mentioned the petroleum flies. What about robber flies? Do they steal food from other insects? No, actually, I'm not aware they do. They 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 just grab. I don't know why robber because it, it suggests that's what they do. They they're predatory, and they grab insects on the wing. Uh, they're really neat flies to see, but they're the kind of fly you need to go out and explore in nature and spend a lot of time and look them up first, so you know what you what you what you're looking at when you see one. And they're quite distinctive. They're, they're very kind of hairy flies. They're often quite big. They they have a, a broad range of sizes, but the biggest can get to be a couple of inches long. And and the, the largest one of the largest is known on rare occasions to to take down a hummingbird. Wow. They, they, they yeah they perch on a on a leaf or a twig usually at some height sometimes on the ground. And they're vision, very visual, superb vision. They got very big bulbous eyes. And if they see something tempting or p potentially food fly by, they zip out and they grab it in the air, a little bit like dragonflies do. And I should mention that dragonflies are not true flies. They're in another group of insects. And the robber fly, upon grabbing the prey, immediately stabs it with his or her pointed dagger-like mouth parts, injects uh, an enzyme that which starts breaking down the body tissues immediately into a liquid that can be sucked out uh, hmm. by, the, by the fly. Flies are not, when we say they bite us, uh, they, all, they all have sucking type mouth parts where they draw in the food as in a fluid state. That's something that kind of defies fly, defines flies as well. And then there are cheese flies. Do they actually lay eggs their eggs on, on cheese, and then their maggots help ripen the cheese? 
That's correct. This is a, a, a delicacy from the island of, oh, where is it? I don't remember the name of the island right now, but anyway, it's part of, part of Europe and uh, it's called Kazu Marzu is the name of the cheese. And uh, only for really gourmands, I think, or, or people who are courageous about what they like to eat. There are some who, let me back up. The flies are drawn to the, the, the curds and the curds are deliberately put out so that the flies can be attracted. And the flies lay their eggs and the maggots hatch and the maggots start feeding on these curds. And the byproducts of the maggots' presence, uh, including their excretions, uh, help to ferment the cheese in a particular way. And so it ends up being kind of an outer shell with these maggots kind of on the inside. I, I can tell you, Leonard, I have not tried tried this cheese. Mm -hmm. I'm not really champing at the bit to give it a try. Uh, but for those who are used to it and grow up with it, lo they love it. And some, some try to clean out the maggots first and there are some who eat it with the maggots, which is pretty cavalier given that some of these mm -hmm. maggots have been known to survive ingestion and to end up being uh, harmful parasites in the stomach lining Ooh. of the uh, diner so it's uh, it's not a food for the faint of heart but obviously those are flies that are not shooed away they're flies that are invited to participate yeah they're one of the relative few i suppose that we're actually uh, some people are glad to have them around what is the life cycle of a fly does how long they live vary by the species it sure does the life cycle is egg larva or maggot and then the maggot pupates into kind of a inert creature and then after depending on the species uh, maybe a few weeks or a few days the pupa hatches out into an adult that whole life cycle happens in uh, maybe three weeks with the, the fruit flies that we might find in our in our kitchen uh, the longevity of flies varies greatly um, the longest part of the life cycle is usually the larva, and that can be months and in some cases even up to six years. Uh, and, and particularly if there's little food, ironically, if there's less food around, they tend to live longer because they remain in the maggot stage longer. It may be that size triggers their metamorphosis into the pupa and then the adult stage. And then, of course, uh, once they hatch out as adults, it really varies. Some flies may live for a few, perhaps a few months as adults, but at the adult stage is usually the shortest or often the shortest stage or one of the shorter stage, usually much shorter than the, the maggot stage. And in some cases, some of the very small uh, midges and gnats, it can be just a few hours long. And they have no, some of these adult flies have no mouth parts. They're not there to feed. Uh, they are there to simply mate and, and reproduce. And a lot of the ones who do feed, including the ones who feed on our blood, they're not so much nourishing their um, themselves as to provide nourishment for the eggs, the bunch of eggs that they're going to lay in a few days' time. Aren't fruit, fruit flies often studied by geneticists because they reproduce very quickly? That's one of the reasons, yeah, it's estimated. They, they can have about 25 generations in one year. And boy, are they ever studied. It's been a little over 100 years since they became the darlings of genetics research or since be, they started to become that. And uh, I, I searched online and found that there's over well over 100,000 scientific papers that have been published focused on Drosophila melanogaster, the, the fruit fly. And about seven Nobel Prizes, including last year's for medicine, the, the, the 2020 prize for the two women uh, who developed the CRISPR gene editing technique. That was work that was largely done on with fruit fly research. 
so yeah, they are really, really uh, widely used uh, as part of my research for my book. I went to a, a lab uh, in the University of Georgia and had an interesting tour to see some of the methods that are used. We used them when I was an undergraduate biology student. We we had some genetic. I took a genetics course, and we, there were fruit fly labs that we did. So yeah, fruit flies are not just popular in the kitchen; they're very popular in the laboratory as well. And what have we learned from doing all that study of, of fruit flies? Well, we certainly learned a lot. Do we just know fruit about flies. fruit flies, or does it also yeah. wind up applying to to other animals? Yeah, we've certainly learned a lot about fruit fly genetics. The assumption here is that is you know the the, the elements of life, the building blocks of life, g- genes are shared, uh, and there's a lot of sharedness. Uh, a lot of this stuff is highly conserved, so. Uh, flies, for instance, have uh, similar biochemistry and there's a dopamine system which relates to the potential for pleasure and an octopamine system. Uh, there are biochemistry aspects to their lives that are similar to ours. Does that mean that the functionality is the same? Not necessarily, but there are certainly parallels. And, and a lot of the research, as you probably know, is done in the context of trying to figure out how we work how humans work. And because, as you say, uh, fruit fly generation spans are much shorter, we can cover a lot more evolutionary time in, in shorter times. We can accelerate the rate at which we can see how genetic material responds to different treatment. For instance, there are scientists who have kept flies in the dark. Uh, they call them dark fly. Uh, these are these are fruit flies who have been bred for hundreds of generations in the dark over several decades of, of time. And uh, they're investigating to see, does that affect their visual systems? Does that affect how they mate and court each other? And there is some, some evidence that, that dark flies uh, who are paired with other dark flies are more successful at reproducing than if you bring in flies who've been living in the light. Uh, they, don't, they don't couple as well. So there's t- signs that even in that relatively short time, there's some evolutionary changes that are happening. Do they have uh, mating rituals? Do they ever? Uh, because you delve into their sex lives. Yeah, yeah I, I, it's always fun to delve into the sex lives of animals. And uh, mm. it seems that flies are really keen on sex. Uh, their, their, their sex comes in 50 shades of brown, as far as I'm concerned. It involves foreplay, gift giving, and cannibalism. There are flies who buzz their wings in certain ways to create songs for their potential mates. That includes fruit flies. Uh, flies who have pictures on their wings, who, who twist them in different ways. It's like a semaphore display. Uh, the genitalia of flies are, are closely studied by a lot of entomologists, partly because they are the most structurally unique across species and sometimes it's the genitalia which is the best tool by which to distinguish one species from another some of these genitalia involve complex docking and locking to be effective and that may be a way that flies themselves avoid coupling with the wrong species because the wrong species may look the same except for when the genitalia try and unite it doesn't they don't fit together and many species, the, geni- the genitalia have to rotate 180 degrees after locking to complete the locking process before they mate, which is why you may find what I found, remember finding once in a, on a hike, one fly perched on a, on a tree or a sign post and the other fly hanging attached by the end and hanging upside down with the legs in the air. I was quite surprised to, to, to discover that many years ago and then later to learn that 
oh, I see. So they rotate 180 degrees in some cases. So there's a lot of aspects to fly sex and fly foreplay and competition for mates. That is really quite, quite amazing to observe. Any kinky details that you can reveal over the radio that are within the FCC guidelines? <laughs> uh, very few. Most of them would violate those guidelines. But uh, <laughs> you can go on YouTube and you can watch remarkable videos. I, I, I refer to one in my in my book that I stumbled on one day. And uh, the, these two flies, the male approaches the female, very gingerly mounts her, and they interlock the genitalia. And this is probably a case where this female has already decided she's going to let him mate, maybe based on his earlier display or how he smells. Uh, who knows? Uh, but they are are quite selective. Females will reject males. Some of them will literally kick a male in the head with their hind leg to repel him. And by the way, just as an aside, males who are rejected by females have been found to be more likely to imbibe alcohol. Fruit flies go for fruit, rotting fruit, especially a, a byproduct of which is alcohol. So alcohol does play a, an important part in the in the life history of flies. And then there's kissing where they join mouth parts and, and um, then, well, maybe it gets maybe it gets too X-rated after that. But uh, uh, there's one other group I really wanted to make sure we we mentioned, and it's the dance flies who have this curious behavior of males giving gifts to females, and this is a probably a, a strategy of survival for the males because these are predatory flies. They catch other flies on the wing and, and jab them with their mouth parts and eat them a little bit like the robber flies do. And males are definitely on the menu for females. So males, if many species have taken to catching an insect and giving it to the female when they reach her, which she can then be presumably happy and preoccupied with while he hopefully, if he has his way, he mates with her. There are other species who actually wrap this gift in silk which presumably buys them more time because the female has to unwrap her gift before she, before she can even start eating it. And then there's some bold and brash and cheeky male species who, in which the males only present an empty wrapper. There's nothing inside. So perhaps that's higher risk, but it's the trade-off because it's less work to, um, to, uh, to get there and get to that point. So you're suggesting that flies have consciousness that they make decisions i always wonder just how uh, conscious my dog is of uh, all the things that are going on uh, I, I never thought about flies in that kind of context yeah it's uh, it was again one of the more interesting aspects of uh, researching and writing this book and and there's more and more evidence coming out all the time that insects and other other invertebrates animals without backbones uh, have evolved consciousness and awareness, cognition, even emotion, and uh, I can I can give you some some aspects of that with insects. First of all, their brains are differentiated; they're not just a little glob of of, of nerve tissue. They actually have brains with structures like a, a mushroom body named for its shape, which is involved in learning and memory. And yes, flies and other species can learn, and they can remember stuff. Uh, spatial information and organizing and movement is done by this a central complex, and then there's a protocerebrum which connects brain regions and collects sensory information. So with a structure like that, you've got wasps who, for instance, can recognize the faces of their colony mates. You've got a study that, a intriguing study came out a few years ago from a couple of Belgian researchers that showed evidence for mirror self-recognition by ants. 
for instance, painting, uh, putting a little blue dot on the forehead of an ant and then put her in front of a mirror and she reacts very differently than if she's just seeing other ants on the other side of a pane of glass or then, or another control would be if she has a, a, a dot that's the same color of hers, as her body. So she presumably can't see the dot or it's on the back of her head. So she doesn't see a dot in the mirror, then she doesn't react this way. But if she sees a dot, she regards herself, steps back, maybe preens and grooms, tries to remove the dot. Uh, what looks like self-awareness. Um, these are, of course, are non-fly examples, uh, but I can give you some fly mm. examples as well. well what uh, kinds youth. of attention spans do they have? Yeah, attention span is one of the things that's been studied in fruit flies. And the way the scientists who've done this do it is to tether a fly usually to a, a little string with a, a little bit of wax on the thorax. And then the fly is, is you remove the platform so the fly starts flying and it's facing one way. And then you have a rotating drum. So the fly is in a rotating drum. Mm -hmm. And then by putting different things on the inside of the drum, you can present them with different, say, symbols like an X or an O. And if a fly is... An, these flies are, unfortunately, for, the, for their sake there, they've got electrodes in their brains, uh, but the flies seem to continue to cooperate and do their thing. And if you rotate the same symbol as, say, an X, then there's a burst of brain activity whenever the X goes by. But as the X continues to rope, go by, it, it becomes monotonous, presumably, to the fly, as it would to us. And there's less brain activity with each rotation until or unless the scientists replace that X with, say, an O or a letter B or whatever, what have you. And then suddenly there's a renewed burst of, of activity mm -hmm. because the stimulus is new. Uh, this is a hallmark of attention, both the, the engagement with a new stimulus and the fatigue or the disinterest that builds with the monotony of the, the same stimulus going by. Another hallmark of attention is distraction. So wait, 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 wait. Not... can we hold off for just a moment? Yes, yeah. I have to go to a break. And I've, oh, been, okay. I've been so fascinated by what you're saying, I'm put off going to that break. But I have to tell my audience that this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM. You're listening to Let It Topate at Large. guest is Jonathan Balcom, whose latest book is Superfly, uh, obviously inspired by the song. The Unexpected Lives of the World's Most Successful Insects, published by Penguin. Uh, this is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. So finish what you were saying. I'm sorry that I had to interrupt you. No problem. Uh, we were talking about uh, the attention span of flies and uh, the one other hallmark of attention that I wanted to mention besides being engaged with, an, with a new stimulus and getting tired if the stimulus repeats is a distraction. Is If we're engaged in something, we're less likely to be distracted. 
Um, but if we're if we're tired of something, then we're more likely to notice something, say, in our peripheral vision. And, and flies being very visual creatures, you can do that. You can present them with, say, a picture of a, a female fly or another fly in the, on the, off to the side. And if that fly, the, the main fly, is focused on some new stimulus in front of them, they're less likely to notice and register the presence of that distraction off to their right or left than if they're currently being presented with us a, a boring stimulus that they've been presented with repeatedly. So I just wanted to mention that other facet of, of the attention span studies. Uh, this is ongoing research, so there's probably more that could be said already. Well, do they have emotions? Can they feel pain or pleasure? Uh, there's evidence for, for yes to both of those. Uh, emotions These are things very... scientists are studying? Yeah, uh, there's 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 pain. The, the, the pain research that's been done. Uh, it's 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 you know this the, the challenge here, of course, Leonard, is that we can't get inside their bodies. We can't know what they're feeling any more than we can a fellow human, for that matter. Of course, we can report verbally what we're feeling, but it's a little trickier to try and figure out how another animal's feeling. But uh, for instance, I mean, a few uh, by inference, a pain is very useful uh, to a mobile organism uh, the, who can move away from a painful stimulus or move towards. It also helps if you can learn, if you have a brain that can learn, because you can learn uh, that something is, is not a good idea to be near and, and avoid it in future. And, and a lot of noted insect scholars have concluded that, that while their pain systems may be somewhat different than ours, they're nevertheless uh, probably feeling pain. Uh, there's studies that show that an insect who's had, say, one leg amputated, uh, three weeks later will show hypersensitivity in that limb uh, to, say, say uh, heat pain. If they're put on a hot plate, they'll run off it much sooner than a fly who hasn't had a leg amputated. So these are, you know, these are not proof, but science doesn't really present proof. It presents accumulating evidence uh, of these of these phenomena. Uh, one other thing to mention is morphine. Uh, again, that point earlier about the conservation of systems through evolutionary time. Uh, flies are responsive to morphine in a do dose-dependent manner. They'll become less sensitive to pain. So those hypersensitive <laughs> flies who had a leg amputated three weeks earlier will go back to normal in terms of their pain sensitivity if they've been dosed with morphine. Wow. So um, I imagine uh, they're, they're, they're now welcoming the legalization of marijuana in so many places. Uh, I don't know if any flies have taken them to dope, but it uh, wouldn't surprise me. They don't miss out on much. You said that they, they are the main carriers of the, of the insect-borne diseases like malaria, yellow fever, West Nile virus, encephalitis, dengue fever, uh, mostly through mosquitoes. We don't hear of other flying insects like bees or butterflies infecting people. Bee stings can be a problem, but um, is it only flies that, uh, that carry these things? No, it's mostly flies. I can certainly say that, but there are there are some other examples. There are some true bugs. Hemiptera is their group. Uh, I remember when I was researching bats in Texas, uh, back in the 80s, uh, there were I discovered living under my phone, my my cheap little phone mattress in this shack. I discovered that these, I don't know if they're reduviate bugs or what the name. It doesn't really matter the name, but they are not flies. They are bugs, and they they're related to the bed bugs. These are a much bigger species, but they were just hiding out under my mattress during the day and then waiting until I was asleep and then coming up and creeping onto me and injecting their little 
their little mouth parts with a, a nice little anesthetic so I wouldn't wake up and then going making off with my blood and I found some of them that were quite distended the next the next morning so there that's one example of a of some of the insects who are not flies but I can tell you the great majority of the ones who go after our blood are flies are flies but I do want to add that only about one percent of, of all insects are harmful to us and far more than than that are beneficial to us through their pollination services etc are there particular plants that are pollinated only by flies? Yes, there are. The most notable would be the cocoa plant, uh, the, the from which we get chocolate. Uh, there's a there's only one tiny little, very unspectacular midge, loosely called the chocolate midge, known to be able to get through the the tricky flower structure to pollinate this flower. And even then, it's a very fickle plant. Even then, most pollinated flowers don't produce cocoa pods, but they have to be pollinated before they will produce a, a cocoa pod. There are also some very tight relationships between uh, the diverse orchid flowers and flies. Uh, there are many flowers, many plants that produce smells that are attractive specifically to flies. That is, they maybe smell like rotting bodies or, or dung. Uh, but there are also some orchids who literally manipulate the flies by taking them captive. They imprison them briefly. They lure them in with a scent. They have a slippery surface with, with exciting tastes and chemicals on it. So the fly is crawling around with dabbing it with their proboscis, their mouth parts, falls into a chamber. The, the plant uh, it triggers a locking mechanism where the plant encloses the fly for perhaps one or two hours. And then it kind of slaps them around a bit and eventually <laughs> deposits a, a, pollen, a, pollen, a polonium, which is a pollen containing structure. Uh, that's what the flower wants to do in, in the long run. And so once that's done, then the flower opens up and lets the fly out. And the, ho the whole system depends on the fly making his or her way to another flower of the same species. So uh, presumably this doesn't, this, this jostling around and manipulation doesn't, doesn't repel the fly enough to, to not go to another flower. And uh, they may be carrying polonia from more than one species, but as long as it's on a different part of the body for each flower, it can be quite effective as a multi-species pollinator during one, one outing. So it's a, it's a very complex, very specific relationship in some cases. On the other hand, aren't there some kinds of flies that cause damage to plants and even destroy crops? Sure, there, you know that that applies to to insects more broadly than than flies. But certainly, you know, and this is one of the problems with some of our modern agricultural methods, in particular monocrops. You know, vast fields of one species, uh, a bit of an ecological desert for most species, but for any creature who say, you know, the corn borer, which is not a fly. Uh, uh, I don't think There's, there are some corn, fly corn, corn uh, eaters. Uh, but you know, if it's an animal that eats corn, then it's a bonanza. And so we kind of, unfortunately, with the monocrop agriculture approach, we kind of invite trouble from from insects. Um, but we, but we, we need to remember though that 90% of the world's quarter million flowering plants are pollinated by insects, and the estimated commercial value of their pollination systems to our food systems is over a half a trillion dollars a year. So there's much more to be grateful about flies with regards to their interactions with plants than, than the other side. You're listening to London Lopin at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Jonathan Balcom, whose latest book is Superfly, The Unexpected Lives of the World's Most Successful Insects, published by Penguin. We talked about maggots earlier, fly larvae. 
they're generally seen as repulsive because they're found on rotting meat or on decaying bodies. Can they play a positive role in medicine? Yes, they absolutely can. They're remarkable. They have remarkable benefits with regards to wound healing. And this is something that has been known for centuries. Uh, medics in the battlefield attending to soldiers who've been gravely injured and have unable to be, they were not rescued for, say, a couple of three, two or three days. Uh, they're brought in from the battlefield and they, they're, the clothes are removed and there's maggots all over them or all over their wounds. And you think, oh my God, the horror, that does sound pretty horrible. But those maggots, it turns out that the, the wounds that are being attended to by maggots uh, are actually clean and in much better shape and they're much less necrotic and there's less dying tissue, there's less infection than without the presence of maggots. And this is because the activities of maggots, both the physical act of their, their little rasping teeth uh, feeding on the rotting flesh and also some of the, um, the, the chemicals that they produce. They seek, for instance, they, they secrete allantoin, which is a, has antiseptic properties that helps to break down dead tissue and promote new cell growth. So that's sort of the history of it. And that's that the science of that was developed a little less than a century ago. Um, uh, and, and we now, and now we're at the point where there are labs who actually produce and grow and culture sterilized flies, that is to say very clean maggots, clean maggots that don't carry filth. And then they're sent out around the world in, in packages and they're applied to, to wounds that are uh, resistant to healing such as um, uh, burns, bone infections, diabetic foot, foot ulcers, traumatic wounds, bed sores and the like. And th they do a fantastic job. This is a, this is a, with the antibiotic era that came in mid-century, last century, uh, this whole, this whole maggot therapy as it's called fell out of favor for a while. But um, as these nimble, as microorganisms have become adapted and resistant to antibiotics, there's been a real resurgence in this wound healing approach. So yeah, flies definitely can really benefit us in the, in the uh, operating room and in the medical field. Has the technique ever been used in a hospital? It's used in thousands of hospitals as we speak worldwide. Uh, and there's a growing number of labs that supply these. Uh, one gentleman in the US who, who works in this field uh, said that he, he used to ship many more shipments, more distances, but now he ships a lot of shipments locally uh, because he doesn't need to ship them uh, internationally because there's more local labs that are, that are actually growing these maggots for this use. By the way, these are typically blowfly maggots. Uh, these are ones uh, drawn to, to rotting tissue. Uh, they play another very important role that perhaps you were, we were gonna get to, but I'll mention it and that's forensics with crime, mm -hmm. crime solving. I was just about to bring it up. <laughs> they they're yeah. used in forensic science to determine how long a body's been dead. That's right, because they're so acutely uh, attuned to the odors of, of of decaying tissue, and the chemistry of decay starts almost immediately at death. So if some poor human has just died somewhere, or has just been put somewhere in the woods, or you know under under shady circumstances. These flies typically arrive on the scene within minutes, uh, certainly typically within an hour. It does depend on the time of year, of course. It depends on the latitude, on the geography, and the situation. But because these flies are so quick to arrive, uh, and because different species arrive at different times in the 
in the course of decay, it could be there's some flies who are immediately attracted and then there's others who only go for advanced decay. So the way this works in crime solving is if, if there's been a murder victim discovered, um, the time of death, which is a critical piece of information to solving uh, a lot of these cases, the time of death can be estimated to within, within an hour or so in many cases based on the stage of development and the different species of fly maggots who are present at the scene. And this has been used to, to, to secure uh, hundreds of, of convictions, of murder convictions, and quite a lot of exonerations as well. So you have to bring in a fly expert at the trial. Yeah, there are currently um, just maybe about two dozen board-certified forensic entomologists worldwide. I interviewed one for my book, and uh, it's a pretty rigorous learning process, but there are many who are on the road to, to getting that qualification. In the, and in the meantime, you know, every bit of knowledge we have is, is very helpful. Uh, I, should, I might just add just how, how incredibly um, uh, resourceful these flies are at finding, finding their food source. Um, some of them can detect the scent of a, of a dead body from 10 miles. Uh, there's, there's one case uh, up to 18 years when a, a cadaver is still attractive to flies 18 years after the death. Uh, they've been found 11 floors up in a building and as far as six feet below ground. So burying a body is not necessarily enough to keep. Well, we only have a couple of minutes left, actually two minutes. But I okay. wanted to talk about a story that you open your book with, a personal story of finding maggots under your skin. You weren't dead. So where and why did that happen to you? Yeah, I was actually 26 at the time, and I was very much alive. And uh, this is a case of uh, flies who do what's called myiasis. That's the term for maggots who feed on your flesh under your skin. And uh, I left some soiled clothing up to dry after a run and then foolishly put them on again for a second run, thinking I could get away with it. And some fly in the meantime, drawn to the smell, had laid eggs on my clothing and the warmth of my body then stimulated the little maggots to crawl out and uh, somehow they're able to burrow into your skin. They were tiny little things, little rice grain sized things, not like the very much larger bot flies of the tropics. But I had I had their company for about a week before I realized they weren't mosquito bites. And uh, we had an expert in these parasitic flies with us just by chance. And he, he said, oh, I'll just put some Vaseline on and it, it, it blocks their, blo their, their breathing tube hole and they, they come out, you can get them out that way, which is what I did. So I did have a brief brush with, uh, with uh, flesh eating maggots. Your book makes the case for seeing flies in a positive light. So should we still swat that fly that's on our kitchen counter or on our food? Or should we try to gently capture it and take it outside? Well, I encourage people to do the latter, uh, you know, because it, it just feels good. I like, I like to benefit life. Insect populations worldwide are declining. Estimated perhaps they've half halved in the last 40 years or so. Uh, and we, we need to have them. We can't live without them. So a little bit of uh, live and let live doesn't, doesn't hurt. I mean, I totally understand people defending themselves against blood-seeking flies. If I'm hiking, I'll I may spare a few, but I, I also do terminate them if they're continuing to try and scalp me. So it depends on the context, but uh, we'd certainly need them around uh, and we benefit from them greatly. But we're not, they're not doing anything negative to our food? 
Uh, yeah, certainly they can contaminate. Uh, house flies are not too fussy about what they land on, so they could have been landing on uh, on something quite unsavory before coming into our kitchen, and that would be grounds for uh, trying to cover our food or protect it from them. Um, so yeah, it's definitely worth worth being concerned about that and and trying to keep them them away. I find that fruit flies aren't so much of a problem that way. They tend to just go for fruit, uh, and and they don't they're not going for poop. You're an ethologist, um, which is, a, a, I guess, a specialty that allows you to do this kind of work. Are you now about to write a book on something else? I've got several ideas in the works. I haven't totally decided on what I'm going to write, uh, but um, uh, it's, it's, it remains to be seen. It might actually be something uh, fiction. I've got, a cho I've got a children's book coming out later this year about a boy and a fish. So I am dabbling a little bit in fiction. Meanwhile, thank you so much for talking with us today about your current book, Superfly, The Unexpected Lives of the World's Most Successful Insects. It's published by Penguin. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. Likewise, Leonard. Thank you so much. And that brings us to the end of our show. Special thanks to segment producer Barbara Kahn for preparing today's interview and to our live engineer, Reggie Johnson, and to Leonard Lopez at Large Executive Producer, Jesse Lent, for all of the work that they do throughout the week. If you would like to hear more about one-hour interviews on one subject, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. Or you can find links to our more than 500 past shows on our website, leonardlopateatlarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to consider stepping up and supporting WBAI to keep this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Please do it right now. We need your help to help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content because WBAI is supported 100% by listener donations. And how about considering becoming a sustaining member, $10 a month, $15 a month, or whatever? Um, it's another way to ensure that we will always be there. Um, it, it, we, we thank you if you uh, have already uh, made that uh, tax-deductible contribution, uh, because I'm sure you understand the station needs your help now more than ever after all the difficulties of the past year. And a great thanks to everyone who's already stepped up to support WBAI in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. We are off on Monday, but I hope you can join us for Tuesday's show when Associate Producer of History and African American Studies at Yale University and Professor of Law at Yale Law School, Elizabeth Hinton, will discuss her new book, America on Fire, The Untold History of Police Violence and Black Rebellion Since the 1960s. You won't want to miss it. Have a great holiday weekend. We'll see you on Tuesday.